From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today we hear from comic, actor, and writer Gerard Carmichael, who hosted Saturday Night Live earlier this month. He'll go deeper into the secrets he reveals in his new HBO comedy special, Rothaniel. Secrets about his real name, his family tree, and his sexual orientation. Carmichael's new special is directed by Bo Burnham. A previous one was directed by Spike Lee. Also, songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson talks about his formative years. Before he went solo, he co-founded the band Fairport Convention, which created a new genre, a hybrid of traditional music of the British Isles and rock. His memoir, Beeswing, is out in paperback. My first guest is comic, actor, and writer Gerard Carmichael. Maybe you saw him hosting Saturday Night Live earlier this month. He was really funny. He has a new HBO Max comedy special called Rothaniel. What does that mean, right? We soon find out. The special is all about secrets. It starts like this. I want to talk about uh, secrets. <laughs> secrets. Ooh. She'll whisper it, right? I carried a lot of secrets my whole life. I, I, like, I, I feel like I was birthed into them. One of my biggest, one of my last held secrets is my name. My name is not Gerard. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. I, uh... He delivers on that promise to reveal personal secrets about his real name, his family tree, and his sexual orientation. It's a lot. Toward the end, when he's interacting with the audience, his show starts to look like a hybrid of a comedy show and a therapy session. Carmichael has done two other HBO comedy specials, Love at the Store, directed by Spike Lee, and Eight, directed by Bo Burnham. Carmichael was also the creator and star of the sitcom The Carmichael Show that ran on NBC for three seasons. That show portrayed a fictional version of Carmichael's family. Many episodes were about them disagreeing with each other on complicated and uncomfortable issues like... Is it still okay to enjoy Bill Cosby's comedy? Is it okay to have a gun in the house? How do you eulogize a father who mistreated you? Is it okay to take the morning after pill if the condom breaks? In Carmichael's HBO special, Home Videos, he returned home to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and filmed conversations with his real family members about sensitive family topics. His new special, Rothaniel, also directed by Bo Burnham, was taped this year at the Blue Note Jazz Club in New York City. Gerard Carmichael, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I love the new special. Congratulations. And you really were great on Saturday Night Live. So congratulations on that, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. What changed in your life that you were willing and able to tell secrets now on stage? <laughs> I think I got tired. Uh, I think I grew tired of um, being someone I wasn't. I felt like I was like just hiding. Uh, they call it being in the closet, I guess, for a reason, because it does feel like you just have walls up. You, you just like, I felt like I was like walking around with a, a mask with my face on it. <laughs> I think it's the best way to describe it. And it just, I, I started being more honest with my friends. I started being more honest in my life. Uh, I don't know. It just kind of all over the past couple of years, it all started happening. It all started coming out. <laughs> you know, I, I came out. Family secret, the things I talk about in the show uh, started coming out. 
I felt freer, I feel freer, I'm still in the process, but uh, the show just captures a moment just where I've just wanted to feel free. Before we get to coming out, let's start with your name, which you tried to keep secret. Gerard is your middle name. Your first name, as you reveal in the special, is the title of the special, which is Rathaniel. Um, tell us about the origin of the name. The name, the name comes from my father. Uh, he uh, he named me after my two grandfathers, his father and my mother's father, um, Robert and Nathaniel combined the the two names at birth and never really <laughs> used it. Uh, like we immediately started using Gerard. Uh, it's mostly all I remember since I was a kid. No one ever called me Rothaniel. Um, I was embarrassed, uh, <laughs> very ashamed. It, it was a secret. And you know, as a child, I already felt different enough. <laughs> and right. like, I don't think that the name helped. <laughs> and so I like it, it was, it, it was big. It, it took up too much space and I, I, I didn't want it. I didn't want any parts of it. So what did you have to do to keep your name a secret? Well, I hid it as much as I could, uh, yeah, on legal documents, they have to write your first name. So I always hid those and turned papers upside down and never showed anyone my driver's license. And as soon as I got my bank cards, I <laughs> like, well, I had to like quickly get them to take the name off because I would forget and they would have the name and I would go through some process there. Like only like a few friends knew, like a few close friends. And then every now and then it would slip through to the yearbook uh, and I would have to get it erased or, or like like some years I would bribe a friend that like, please don't put Rothaniel, just put Gerard. And yeah, it was a fight. It was a constant fight, constantly hiding it. You had to keep a lot of secrets as a kid and one of them was about... Your family tree, your grandparents, your father, and all the extramarital affairs they had, and all the outside children that they had. It, it, it's a lot. My one of my grandfathers uh, had dozens outside of his marriage, and the other had a few himself, and including my father, who had um, a few children outside of. His marriage to my mother, uh, which I knew about, I found out about at, a, at an early age. And um, yeah, it, it's in my family history, you know, in a, in a real way. And, and I think it's more common than, uh, you know, I, in the South. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of families where I'm from share that secret or, or have families like that, or at least know families or in families like that some way. What about your friends? Like you were keeping the secret about your family tree, but did your friends, were your friends in the same situation? Uh, I, I have friends in, in like broken families. It's a lot of broken families, you know, um, children with uh, who don't know their fathers or a group of children with one set of parents and step siblings. With, like, it just, it, it's, it's a lot of that. None with my exact story, but yeah, definitely a lot with, uh, you know, just outside kids. Just even that expression 
you know, it's just kind of, it's insane, you know, like outside, outside kids. Um, there are a lot of outside kids. So how did, I mean, your mother didn't know about this, or at least she acted like she didn't know. And your father didn't know that you knew. How did you know that he was having these other relationships and had these other children? It's a small town. I'm from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, and I, I, I had like instances where a friend seen him with uh, you know his aunt and 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 told me about it. And and you, you hear whispers and and. I don't remember any exact moment where I found out, more so just piecing together little clues, uh, things not adding up. It's funny, he actually taught me to be very uh, inquisitive and to question everything, so I, I, I guess I used uh, those powers against him. But I, things just just didn't add up. So these are powerful things to be carrying around as a child. You're hiding your name. Yeah. When you figure out your sexual orientation, you're hiding that. You're hiding the truth about your father's relationship. Um, you're hiding it from that you know from your father. You're hiding his relationship from your mother. You're living with them. I mean, you see them every day. And you have this huge secret you're carrying around about their relationship. How did you bear all that? It's something you figure out later as an adult, you know, reflecting on your childhood or going to therapy or talking to friends that you didn't. <laughs> you know, like I, I thought I did. I thought I bared it. Uh, I thought I bared it without consequence, I should say. And I didn't go out uh, unscathed. It's definitely things that affect my behavior to this day, fears, um, you know, my hypochondriacal nature. All things kind of stem from mistrust. But at the time, it's just, I don't know, I was just, I was scared. I, I, I think I lived in fear. It was a lot of uh, consequence or stakes to, <laughs> to everything. You, you say that you made your father tell your mother about his outside relationships with other women and his children by other women. Um, how did you make your father tell your mother, if you don't mind my asking, what did you say to your father? And how old were you when you said it? I was in my 20s. I, I, was, I was in London shooting a movie. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I almost hate to admit what the... <laughs> like the straw that broke the camel's back was mostly because I'm 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 embarrassed that um it's not for a more righteous reason but uh my father had booked a hotel room and he and my brother have the same name and the email confirmation accidentally went to my brother and I found out about it and at this point I was offering financial support to uh, my family and something about using my money to cheat on my mom felt a little egregious. <laughs> like it felt uh, like a little bit too much um, and, and a lot of feelings and a lot of emotion that I suppressed came rushing back and it just felt like too much. 
And so I called him. I got very drunk and called him. Um, and I was uh, uh, walking around on the streets <laughs> in London. It like, God, I, I remember it being so late, like after midnight. And I started the conversation with this will all go okay as long as you don't lie to me. And, and I'm glad I said that taking lies off the table immediately uh, because it went okay he listened and uh and apologized and uh yeah yeah it was a really strong conversation a really hard one to have I was really scared was he shocked that you knew he said at the end of that call I always knew you'd be the one <laughs> I think I say oh. that in the special but yeah you do that's true yeah yeah he said he said that um and I think that a lot it changed between us, um, like the power dynamic, it shifted. You know, I was the breadwinner. I, I had less fear of uh, like the consequence of asking questions, I guess. Um, I argue more. <laughs> I think it made sense. I think it made sense to him. My guest is Gerard Carmichael. His new HBO special is called Rothaniel. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. And songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson will talk about his formative years. He co-founded the band Fairport Convention, which created a new genre, a hybrid of traditional music of the British Isles and rock. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with Gerard Carmichael. His new HBO special is all about secrets, about his real name, his family tree, and his sexual orientation. You said that there's been periods in your life where you thought you'd rather die than come out. What were the consequences that you feared? Uh, you know, being disowned. Uh, everything gay uh, <laughs> well, even like when we would use it as a term of like, oh, that's gay, or it, one, it, it, it was just a dismissal of a person or a thing. It's just, it was a wall. It was like, oh, well, I don't want any parts of anything that's gay, you know, and, and I just felt like I would just be banished from the lives of my friends. They'd be embarrassed to be seen around me. These are the thoughts that I'm having. You know, they'll be embarrassed. They'll be, uh, that everything's high school and that they'll just mock me. I, I, I've, I've also been straight long enough to hear how straight people talk about gay people sometimes. What was the model of masculinity you grew up with? The word hyper comes to mind. Um, <laughs> uh, a, a lot of, I, I think there were, um, in a world without fathers, I think there was an overcompensation. So people find fathers elsewhere. You'll find a father. You'll find, like, you, you, you need it for balance. And unfortunately, a lot of my friends didn't know their dad and, you know, found it from other guys who didn't know their dad. And, you know, there was always the potential of violence. The, the friends who've gotten killed over, like, ego, over protecting that masculinity. It's all, all such a, a grand performance. 
did that add to your fear of consequences if you came out, if people knew that they'd see you as being more vulnerable and there are guns around and the consequences could be, like, fatal? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It makes you watch what you say. <laughs> and, yeah, there are just rules. There are so many rules. Um, it's Masculinity can, can be very, very rigid. Don't smile in pictures. <laughs> you know, like, like it, it's a lot of... Um, People just aren't on guard. It's a really masculine culture. You, you know, you're, you're taught to get as much money as you can. You know, girls, protect your family, that type of rhetoric, uh, which, are, which are important, but it, it's definitely like a by any means Malcolm X kind of version of it <laughs> that I was raised on. Like, uh, I, I guess that's why the word hyper comes to mind. It was definitely like... A, you know, man, capital M. How old were you when you realized you were, you were gay? I don't know. I don't know because I, I don't, I, I've had experiences with other boys when I was a kid and uh, I've had little secret things here and there throughout my life. But when I was younger, when the internet and internet porn would come around, I would watch gay porn and then Immediately after, I would watch straight porn almost as if to cleanse it, almost as if to to get rid of what I'd just done, to, co- to cover up the sin, to kind of hide it, right? Like, and, and it's a silly psychological game that I played with myself as a game of one. Um, no pun intended. Uh, but, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but you, you see what I mean? Like the example of that, like that, what am I doing in that situation? I don't know. I'm, I'm hiding. I'm trying to make it better. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to make it right. You know, like little psychological things like that um, to make it go away. That I would try and do that to myself. And so I, when I was younger, I, prob- I believed myself to be on a straight path. Um, eventually, I would have convinced myself to marry a woman in some world. I, I would have, yeah, yeah, I definitely was uh, suppressing it, running from it, hiding from it. So I, how long before I realized that what I was was gay. I, I, I don't know. It just kind of became undeniable. And I, I guess later in life, I was, you know, I'm someone, and I'll, I'll use air quotes, that probably leans a bit more masculine. So I could hide it. I could, I could have never come out. And, you know, some people suspect, if you know my affinity for Dries Van Noten, but <laughs> like, you know, for most of the world, I was straight presenting. So I was able to hide, you know, um, um, even as a kid, you know, I didn't really play sports, but my jeans were just baggy enough to be trade, <laughs> you know, to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked about how deeply re- religious your mother is. And in her view of Christianity, like homosexuality is a sin, like she is really having trouble accepting that. And that is part of the reason why you've had such trouble accepting it and being open about it over the years. But, you know, you say that you're still Christian, but that it's taken a lot and that you've had to reconfigure God and what God is in order to accept yourself and kind of rebuild from there. What was church like when you were growing up? 
fun actually. It it was it was fun. I sang on the choir. I had a lot of fun. Even as a child, I would go to Bible study on Wednesday nights and and, and just you know getting arguments about faith. <laughs> and it was really fun. It was a it's a great social event. You know, uh, Sunday morning. I had friends. There were a lot of kids at the church. Uh, I used to run the sound room <laughs> for a little while. Uh, very, very involved uh, in the church plays. And yeah, it was like my first performance space. Uh, my mom was an usher and I've always been obsessed with microphones my whole life. And I, she used to like after church, she would um, hold me up to the mic when the church was clearing out, like when they were like shutting everything down. She would like hold me up to the mic so I could speak in it because I just love the, the sound. Like it's just such a miracle. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and church was just like the first place that like gave me a microphone and an audience. And <laughs> it's a great show. It's an excellent show. So, you know, I just want to end by saying that I hope you and your mother kind of get back together again because you seem like you're so close in so many ways. And and I hope that she's able to eventually appreciate the openness that you have now and the acceptance of yourself and the reality of your truth um, and meet you there. Thank you for that. And, and I hope so, too. And I, I know it starts with myself, like, you know, um, and it's not me trying to take responsibility for anyone else's feelings. But I do know that the world can't love me, my mother included or, or anyone else, until I I have a firm foundation and I know who I am and I'm willing to accept who I am. Um, and, you know, that's a process that I, I feel like I started late, but you know, the more honest I am, the freer I am. And, 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 and I hope that time helps. Gerard Carmichael, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, it's just really been great to speak with you again and hear you be uh, so open. And I think it's been great for your comedy. I love the new special. And it sounds like it's been really good for your life as well. So congratulations on all of that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate talking to you. I appreciate your words. It's been fun. Gerard Carmichael's new HBO special is called Rothaniel. My next guest is Richard Thompson, who's been a guest several times on our show because his music is so great. He stands out for the originality and the darkness of his songwriting, singing, and guitar playing. He's been an influence on many performers, and his songs have been covered by people like Robert Plant, Elvis Costello, and R.E.M., In 1967, he co-founded the British group Fairport Convention, which created a new genre, a hybrid of traditional folk music of the British Isles and rock. The group performed traditional songs and originals, and many of those originals were written by Thompson. Sandy Denny was the lead singer. Thompson had no faith in his own voice as a singer and only started singing on stage after leaving the band in 1971 and going solo. In 73, He formed a group with his girlfriend, then wife, Linda Thompson. They sang duets, sometimes with Linda, sometimes with Richard singing lead. Their last album together was in 1982. Then the band and the marriage split up. 
It's hard for me to imagine a time when he wasn't a singer because his voice is so sure and strong and able to express the emotions in the surprising, dark, melodic, and lyrical turns of his songs. Thompson's memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, has just been published in paperback. It focuses on his early years as a performer, with Fairport and with Linda Thompson. It's also about his childhood and teenage years. The title, Bee's Wing, comes from the title of one of his songs. We'll be talking about his formative years, but I want to start with a more recent album from 2018. The album is called Thirteen Rivers. The song is called The Storm Won't Come. I'm looking for a storm to blow through town. I'm blowing these sad old buildings down. Fire to burn. What fire may and rain to wash. Richard Thompson, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's always such a treat to have you on the show. I love your music so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have such a dark sensibility, and I'm thinking about how so much of pop music over the decades, particularly in the pre-Dylan era, were about love and romance and, you know, more chaste sex because you weren't allowed to use sexual, (laughs) sexually explicit words in the earlier days of pop. But so many traditional ballads, like the ballads of the British Isles that you, you know, started singing are about love and murder and revenge and death and storms at sea and hangings. And yeah, happy stuff. Happy stuff. Is that part of what you loved about those old ballads? Well, I think it is. Um, I don't know why we are so attracted to that stuff. It, it's great storytelling. Um, the, the old Scottish and Irish ballads and English ballads um, are just wonderful storytelling. And if you grow up on a diet of that, you think that's normal. And uh, when people say, oh, your music's so dark, you know, you've got such a dark sensibility, um, you know, I, I just say, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, to me, it's just normal. And I'm happy that people think my music is at least serious, that it's not frivolous pop music, that it actually shares uh, some of the characteristics of poetry or of, of good prose. You know, you're going to the same places. Um, you're just expressing it in a more musical way. Your father was from Scotland, and your grandmother, and I don't know if it was your maternal or paternal grandmother, sang a lot, too, in Gaelic sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about the songs you learned just from hearing them sing and what their style of singing was like, and and if you were willing to sing a few bars of one of those songs that you grew up with? 
yes, my dad's mother um, was from the Isle of Skye, and uh, she, you know, she, she wasn't a great singer, but but she sang around the house, and, and I don't think I could sing you something she sang because it was in Gaelic, and I don't really have have the Gaelic. Um, and she sang a great song called Alan the Brown. Um, I guess the brown haired. Um, it's a love song. It's a beautiful tune, um, and it's usually sung unaccompanied. Uh, and she'd just, you know, be singing it around the house when, when she's doing the dusting, you know. Um, I probably learned more um, from friends and from hanging out in folk clubs than I really did from family. I wasn't really part of one of those strong family traditions like the Watersons, you know, or, or, or the McGarrigals. What was behind the founding of Fairport Convention and what made you think that you wanted to and that the band should explore the music of, you know, the traditional British ballads? I think we started out as, as a bunch of friends. Uh, myself and Ashley and Simon were three like-minded, you know, North London teenagers, um, fairly determined to not be like other bands. Um, I think we thought there was a glut of blues bands, R&B bands, soul bands. Um, so we always tried to find uh, obscurities. If we were going to do a blues song, like we'd try and find something that no one else had ever heard of. And, uh, if, if, and we would do country songs, which no one else did at that time. And, and we, we do um, singer-songwriter stuff. Uh, we were very early in finding uh, Joni Mitchell demos before she had recorded. I think we were the first people to get the basement tapes, uh, the Dylan basement tapes. Uh, we were doing very early songs by Leonard Cohen. Um, so, you know, we were being obscure. Before we be, really became writers, we were trying to have uh, the most... Um, uh, obscure, different material from anybody else, and uh, I think I think our love of of lyrics made us stand out from other bands more than anything else. Uh, we really liked um, great lyrics, so we do philoak songs. Where we we do um, you know Joni Mitchell, etc. Um, I don't think anyone else was really doing that at the time. My guest is songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson. His memoir, Bees Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967-75, to has just been published in paperback. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson. His memoir, Bees Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, has just been published in paperback. In the late 60s, he co-founded the British group Fairport Convention, which created a new genre, a hybrid of traditional folk music of the British Isles and rock. The first song that was a traditional song that Fairport did was She Moves Through the Fair. And of course, Sandy Denny was the lead singer. Why was this the song that was chosen to be the first actual traditional song that the band did? Well, when Sandy joined the band, we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. We were playing shows all the time, and so we had to to get Sandy into the band, to integrate Sandy into the band as quickly as possible. So as she slowly learned our repertoire, we decided that we should learn some of her repertoire that she was singing in the folk clubs. And it was easy to kind of wrap ourselves around her arrangement of She Moved Through the Fair, uh, Nottingham Town, a couple of other other songs uh, that she'd been performing. So that was a fairly easy rehearsal process. And, and for us, it was a nice way to, uh, to start playing some British Isles music. Well, why don't we hear that recording? 
And this is uh, Sandy Denny with Fairport Convention. She moved through the fair. an early Fairport Convention song with my guest Richard Thompson on guitar. Um, when you started becoming deeply involved with, you know, musically with traditional music, did you do a lot of research looking for old ballads that, you know, that struck you as, as music you and, and Fairport should be performing? We did a lot of research. Um and uh, for, for for our first forays in, into traditional rock, or everyone wants to, want to call it, um, we did look at, at some of the older ballads, particularly Scottish ballads, um, that, that, that had powerful lyrics. Uh, a song like Matty Groves, which is um, a murder ballad. Uh, we, we thought, well, if, if you sing these lyrics over the power of an electric band, that's going to be an incredible combination of things. Uh, Tam Lim, which is a very, a very supernatural song. Again, it's a story that kind of grabs you. Uh, and if you put it with this powerful backing, um, that, that's going to be something, something really quite fantastic. So we were looking for things that would work. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think, I think we found some some folk songs were too pastoral, were too bucolic uh, to fit in, into that framework. But um, sometimes we're the older songs. You might have a song that's four or five hundred years old. Uh, th- there are many versions, and sometimes you want to grab the best bits uh, from all those versions. Um, but, and some traditionalists would sneer at that approach. But but for us, um, we really wanted to get you know the best, the most honed down um, version of a song um, that, that carried the most power and and had the least dead wood in it. Um, the, the story would keep keep progressing and keep rolling. So, um, yes, I mean, the answer is yes, lots of research. Is there a song that you found through this research that you're still particularly fond of? I mean, I love a song like um, Willow Day, uh, which is um, also known as Adieu, Adieu, which, which is, uh, it's like a high women's um, song. And it's just such a perfect, beautiful um, song. It's got a great tune, has wonderful uh, lyrics, uh, very colorful lyrics. Um, I'm extremely fond of it. I was never involved in Fairport's recording of that song. I'd left the band by then. But uh, I sing it occasionally. I'll sing it live occasionally, uh, just because it's a wonderful place to go. And and, uh, when you sing those old songs, you feel this reverberation of history. You feel all the singers who sung that song down through the years. Would you mind singing a few bars of it? (laughs) Okay, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start anyway. 
Adieu, adieu, hard was my fate. I was brought up in a tender state. Bad company, it did me entice. I left off work and took bad advice, which makes me now to lament and say, pity the fates of young felons all. Oh, will oh day, will oh day. Uh, yeah. Um, our listeners may be hearing birds in the background. <laughs> Do you want to explain to us where you are? Oh, yes, I'm in a car park uh, because um, my house was too noisy. So, so I, I'm uh, I'm just watching uh, some robins um, getting frisky at, at sort of mating season um, and uh, very charming. <laughs> and the only thing between you and uh, the robins and their singing is the windshield and the car windows. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. You write that it was hard to keep the sound of unaccompanied singing the kind of singing that was often done with traditional songs, and the ambiguity of key and the lack of resolution in the melody once you put instruments behind it. Can, can you elaborate on that and maybe if, if you could sing perhaps an example of the ambiguity of key and the lack of resolution in the melody that you refer to? Hmm, okay. Um... You know, it's tempting uh, when you grow up in a sort of Western music uh, to, to, to put anything that's from outside of it uh, into the basic Western chord structure, you know, like CFG or something, uh, will, will fit an awful lot of traditional songs if you, if you let them. But, but in traditional music, um, it, sometimes it is hard to know what the key is. Um, she moves with the fair, and my young love said to me, my parents won't mind, and my father won't slight you for your lack of kind. And she laid her hand on me, and this she did say, it will not be long, love, till our wedding day. Now, you could, you could sing that over the root note, or you could, you could sing it over a fourth above or a fifth above. Um, and sometimes you don't want to pin that down. Uh, you want to keep that ambiguity. And um, a great traditional interpreter, someone like Martin Carthy, would use special guitar tunings uh, in order to keep that ambiguity alive uh, and to, to not nail it down uh, into sort of C, F, and G so it sounds like, um, you know, a, a Western tradition popular song. And, and it's not always easy to do that, but it's, it's a very desirable thing, I think, to, to keep that an ambiguity going. So how did you deal with it as a guitarist? As a guitarist, um, I learned from people like Martin Carthy and Davy Graham, uh, some of the great acoustic um, guitar players in Britain. And uh, as a band, we, we try to arrange things in that way. And um, we did a song uh, maybe a year, a year later than that called A Sailor's Life, where uh, it's basically built, built around a drone. Uh, so, so you have a drone and melody and not an awful lot of uh, saying what the chord is. And uh, just drone and melody is a very old tradition. Um, a, a lot of uh, pipe music, um, bagpipe music um, from all around the world, uh, it's basically drone and melody. So it's a very ancient thing. Um, and, and you don't have to develop that into a chord structure necessarily. Yet you, can, you can keep that um, ambiguity going. So in Fairport, um, eventually we really tried to do a lot more of that. Let's hear the song you were just talking about. This is Fairport Convention. We have not said 
That was Fairport Convention with my guest Richard Thompson on guitar. So when you're playing this like new kind of music, combining you know traditional music and rock, was it hard to find an audience? Um, the audience were really there um, for us. And, uh, you, you know, I think we, we only really started playing that music um, 100% um, after we, we had a, a traffic accident that killed our drummer. And uh, well, we had great sympathy for, from our audience. And uh, our, our first show was at the Festival Hall in London. And it was sold out. It was a great success. Um, people loved it. Uh, and you know, we had, you had this phenomenon of um, playing... Uh, in among the, 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 the these great songs, these wonderful ballads, uh, playing um, traditional dance music, tr- playing jigs and reels, um, very loud and very fast, uh, and uh, the audience just were bowled over by this this concept. Um, and uh, we had great audiences really from that point onwards. Uh, it, it, there wasn't ever um, a doubt. I think when we came to America. We found it a little bit harder. The audiences were a little more resistant to what we were doing and didn't really understand what we were doing. Let, let's talk about that car crash. This was in 1969. Um, and you and the band and your girlfriend at the time, Jeannie, were in the car. And the person driving was like your manager, your road manager? Road manager, yeah. And You just played a club in Birmingham. You were driving home. And um, you want to describe what happened? Is that too much to ask? I know it's very traumatic, so... Uh, it's okay, yeah, I, I can answer that. So uh, we're driving back to London. We're almost at London, and our driver falls asleep, and, and the van, you know, veers off the road. Um, but, but you knew that you knew he was falling asleep. You tried to grab the wheel. You did grab the wheel to avert crashing into a pole, and you didn't crash into the pole, but the car, you know, spiraled into a tunnel instead. Um, well, it, it, it kind of spiraled. I mean, it was not literally into a tunnel, but it spiraled and, and, and rolled. Um, and, uh, you know, we ended up off the road and, and down an embankment. Um, uh, there were injuries. Um, my girlfriend was killed. Our drummer was killed. Uh, and that was a real watershed for the band. Um, uh, as we recovered from that, um, the, the, the three of us anyway, uh, myself and Ashley and Simon and, and Sandy as well, we really uh, had to have a meeting and say, what are we going to do? Are we going to continue as a band? Uh, is it worth it? You know, this is too big a price to pay for, for the joy of playing music live. Um, and eventually we decided, well, we should carry on, if only for the sake of Martin and Jeannie. Uh, um, I, th- I think we owe it to them uh, to, to keep the spirit alive and, and, uh, and keep ourselves sane as well, really, I think. We had to have a project, I think, to, to, keep our, to hold ourselves together. What was the project? Well, the project was really to do the Legion Leaf album, uh, which was the next album. Um, and this was an all-traditional uh, record. Uh, I think there were a couple of original songs, but it was supposed to be um, a statement, really. Um, th- this is you know, how you play British music uh, in the 20th century, uh, i.e. With, with bass and drums. Um, so that, that, that was the project that, that we, we put all our energy into uh, and a lot of research into. And it kept us going through that summer. And um, I think it was released uh, in the autumn of that year. And we toured it in the autumn of that year. And um, I think it did, it did keep us sane to some extent anyway. Um, 
but it was difficult. You know, the, the, there wasn't a lot of therapy in those days. So there wasn't a lot of counselling. Um, uh, there wasn't a lot of thought of, of you know, of trauma. And uh, I think we were just supposed to, to get on with it, really, uh, to get on with life. But I think we were deeply scarred, actually. Um, and it took us a couple of years uh, to truly recover from, from that accident. Um, and I think some of the decisions that we made in the next uh, couple of years um, w w were not good. And um, it, was, it was a tough time, tough time. So the album that you mentioned, Legion Leaf, had a lot of traditional songs, but a couple of originals. I want to play an original that you wrote that's on that album, Crazy Man Michael. Can you say something about the song before we hear it? I think the, the song's metaphorical. It, it's, it's almost like a magical world, like, like a parallel universe, a dream world, um, and not, not far removed from the, the world of traditional music and, and the kind of themes, the supernatural themes that you find in traditional music. And I'm not sure I knew what I was doing when I was writing it, but clearly it's a reflection on, on the accident and on the loss of, of those wonderful people. Well, let's hear it. This is Fairport Convention with Sandy Denny singing lead. Fairport Convention from their album Liege and Leaf. My guest is Richard Thompson, who was the guitarist and lead songwriter for the band. And then, of course, he sang with Linda Thompson after that and then went solo and has been solo for years. I want to close with the song Bee's Wing, which is the title of your book as well as the title of the song. Richard Thompson, thank you so much for talking with us. It's, it's always such a pleasure to have you on our show and to have an opportunity to play a lot of your music. Oh, well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Terry. I was 19 when I came to town. They called it the summer of love. They were burning babies, burning flags, the hawks against the doves. I took a job in the steaming down on Cardrum Street, and I fell in love with a laundry girl who was working next to me. Well, she was a rare thing, fine as a bee's wing, so fine a breath of wind might blow her away. She was a lost child Well, she was running wild She said, as long as there's no price on love, I'll stay And you wouldn't want me any other way 
That's Richard Thompson singing his song Bee's Wing, which is also the title of his memoir. It's just been published in paperback. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>